Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Table, Conversations on Youth Justice, the show where we take on issues of youth justice in Michigan. I'm your host, Gabrielle Dresner, and with me again today is my co-host, Hussein Hydri. I'm glad to be here. So a quick note before we get into this episode, we're going to talk about some sensitive material today that may not be suitable for all listeners. That includes mentions of alcohol use, drug use, suicide, abuse, and violence. So on today's episode, we're covering juvenile life without parole, and the Supreme Court cases that led us to where we are today. So juvenile life without parole is a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole for anyone under the age of 18. Essentially, the judge is imposing a sentence saying that the youth is unable to and never will be able to be rehabilitated. And one of the things that we're going to talk about a lot today is the Eighth Amendment of the United States Constitution. And we're just going to read the text here so that Everyone's kind of starting in the same place. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. And it's that last clause right there, cruel and unusual punishment, that most of today is going to be about. Another point that I want to talk about here just real quick is a question that I had and you know, a lot of people have, which is that why are so many of these kids so reprehensible. They've done terrible things. They've hurt a lot of people in their community. Yet we're going to spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about how the court should show them mercy and how as a society we should treat them better. And the reason for that is when we're talking about cases that wind their way through the appeals process and get to the Supreme Court and then dictate judicial principles for the entire United States, for the entire nation, it's the cases that really boil down to the principles that we want to be dictating that. We want the cases where there aren't a ton of mitigating circumstances. We want the cases where it's only the principle of whether we should give the death penalty or mandatory life without parole, um, because the Supreme Court then has to deal with that issue rather than whether the child has mental health issues, familial you know, issues, which we'll see a lot. But we want the Supreme Court to decide based on the principle rather than a confluence of circumstances. And so that's just an important point that I hope all listeners will be thinking about today is how can we deal with the constitutional questions, the underlying principles in the judicial system rather than the character of the individuals involved? Yeah, I think that's a really good point to start off with. So we're gonna go through the Supreme Court cases that sort of made juvenile life without parole what it is today. And the first case we're going to cover is Roper v. Simmons, which was decided in 2005. So in 1973, 17-year-old Christopher Simmons, 15-year-old Charles Benjamin, and 16-year-old John Tesmer devised a plan to commit burglary and murder. Simmons, the mastermind of the plan, assured his friends that they could get away with it because they were minors. The three boys met around 2 a.m. with the intent of acting out their plans. Tesmer left before the plan began, leaving Simmons and Benjamin, the two perpetrators of the crime. The boys broke into the house of the victim, Shirley Crook, where they attacked her and murdered her. The next day, Simmons was arrested at his high school and was taken to the police station. He was read his rights, waived his right to attorney, and agreed to answer questions. And this is because Simmons incorrectly believed that he was protected as a juvenile, and then he confessed to the crime. He was tried as an adult, and convicted of the first-degree murder of Shirley Crook. He was then sentenced to death. So we're going to talk a bit about Simmons' history here. He had some pretty poor school performance. He wasn't performing very well academically. 
He would be absent from his home for extended periods of time. It was reported that he used alcohol and drugs and that there was also abuse in his home. And that brings us to 2003, when the Missouri Supreme Court actually reviewed the Simmons case and determined that the death penalty in this case violated the Eighth Amendment, constituting cruel and unusual punishment. The state of Missouri, of course, appealed the decision, and the United States Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. And in a dramatic decision, they reversed a 1989 holding by the name of Stanford versus Kentucky, which had previously upheld the death penalty for 16 to 17-year-olds. In a 5-4 decision, the United States Supreme Court bans the use of the death penalty for youth. Uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who's actually the deciding vote uh, in this case, delivered the opinion of the court and said, quote, By protecting even those convicted of heinous crimes, the Eighth Amendment reaffirms the duty of the government to respect the dignity of all persons. And I just want to mention here that he, in his, in his opinion, uses a tool that's very common in the study of the Eighth Amendment. Um, he talks about this principle, uh, what he refers to as, quote, the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society. And this is actually a reference to another Supreme Court case by the name of Atkins versus Virginia, a 2002 case, where the Supreme Court actually decided that the execution of mentally ill defendants was cruel and unusual. And so what Anthony Kennedy is doing here, what Justice Kennedy is doing, is he's drawing a line between the child with poor impulse control and the individual, the adult, who isn't fully in control of him or herself. And what he says is that both warrant lesser culpability for their actions. The American Medical Association was quoted in a brief submitted for this case saying that scientists can now demonstrate that adolescents are immature not only to the observer's naked eye, but in the very fibers of their brains. And this really gets to sort of the root of what we're talking about this episode, and that's that youth are less capable due to their brain development. They just simply do not have the physical mechanisms to look that far ahead and seriously consider the consequences of their actions. They're also more susceptible to peer pressure. Think back to when you were 12, 13, 14. One of the most important things to a kid that age is impressing their friends and doing things that's going to get them you know, higher up the social status of middle and high school. And then the last thing that we're talking about here is the capacity for reform. And like I said, their brain development is, um, their brains aren't fully developed at this point. So there is a higher capacity for reform in youth. The decision in this case affected 72 youth on death row in 12 states. And between 1976 and the Roper decision in 2005, 22 defendants were executed for crimes committed as youth. And with that, Gabby, let's move to the second case that we want to talk about today, um, which is Graham versus Florida in 2011. This case starts in 2003 with a 16-year-old named Terrence Graham and a few of his friends when they attempt to rob a restaurant where one of them works. Uh, Graham and an accomplice hit the restaurant manager with a pipe, only to flee soon after in a car waiting for them. Uh, the manager needed stitches, but he survived and no money was ultimately taken. Graham ended up serving 12 months for armed robbery, and the prosecutor elected to charge him as an adult, though he had the ability to charge him as a juvenile if he wished. Um, but after he serves his 12 months, Graham is released, only to commit another robbery six months later. Along with two other individuals, he enters a home where he held the occupant, occupant at gunpoint for half an hour. Uh, they tried another armed robbery that night, um, but one of them got shot, 
Graham fled after he dropped him off at the hospital, and he ended up crashing his car and was eventually arrested. He was then tried and convicted of armed home robbery, and he was sentenced to life without parole. So a look at Graham's history here. Like we talked about in the last case, history plays a really critical role in these cases and how the actions of these youth played out. So Graham's parents uh, were reported to have abused crack cocaine. Graham was diagnosed with ADHD in elementary school. He began drinking, um, drinking alcohol and smoking tobacco at nine years old, and he began smoking marijuana at 13 years old. So you can see here, we're starting to notice a pattern among these kids of traumatic, uh, traumatic childhoods. So Graham then appealed his sentence, arguing that it violated the Eighth Amendment and consisted cruel and unusual punishment. The District Court of Appeals in Florida disagreed and upheld his sentence. The appeal then went to the Supreme Court, who overturned the Florida Appellate Court decision. Justice Kennedy, again delivering the opinion of the court, stated that, under the Eighth Amendment, the state must respect the human attributes, even those who have committed serious crimes, end quote. This is actually a point where I want to bring listeners back to the first point that I made, which was that we should be thinking about the constitutional principles, the legal uh, underlying question that the Supreme Court is trying to address here. And in this case, what the Supreme Court is trying to do is answer the question of whether juvenile life without parole is an appropriate penalty for non-homicide offenses. And just like it did in Roper versus Simmons, the U.S. Supreme Court here assesses the state of juvenile life without parole across the country. And it finds that very few states, in fact, impose it as a penalty. Uh, another a factor that they consider here is the extent of youth's culpability in the eyes of the law. The court actually takes two hypothetical people, an adult murderer with a life sentence and a juvenile non-homicide offender, and it compares their uh, the penalty that's imposed on them. Justice Kennedy, who's authoring the opinion of the court, says, quote, it follows that when compared to an adult murderer, a juvenile offender who did not kill or intend to kill has a twice diminished moral culpability. The age of the offender and the nature of the crime each bear on the analysis. And so what he's saying to the court here is that we should consider the fact that, number one, a juvenile offender is going to be serving the same sentence as uh, someone who actually, an adult who actually murdered some somebody. Um, but what he's also saying is that someone who did less, he committed a lesser crime, right? He didn't kill or intend to kill anyone. He, he's still serving the same sentence as an adult murderer. And he says that we should consider both the fact that this is a child and that the nature of the crime was less severe in uh, addressing whether this is a constitutional sentence. And the last point that the court discusses here is the extent to which a juvenile actually has the ability to be rehabilitated, which isn't usually a point to be considered in an adult court. Uh, and he says, quote, deciding that a juvenile offender forever will be a danger to society would require making a judgment that he is incorrigible. But incorrigibility is inconsistent with youth, end quote. And this is the crux of it. This is the most important point. This is Justice Kennedy saying exactly what scientists, psychologists, social workers like you, Gabby, have been saying 
for decades that youth have an ability to reform themselves, to be rehabilitated. And to say that a youth is always going to be a danger to society, that they can't change, is, quote, inconsistent with youth, period, right? And that is such an important point, and that is going to be a principle that's going to uh, continue to animate what the Supreme Court does and other courts do about youth going forward. Finally, the court says that juvenile life without parole is, quote, an especially harsh punishment for a juvenile. A 16-year-old and a 75-year-old each sentenced to life without parole received the same punishment in name only, end quote. And this is a point that I want to make about proportionality. Think about the length of time that a 16-year-old will spend in prison if he's given a life sentence versus a 75-year-old. It's going to be a dramatically different penalty, right? For a 75-year-old, that's going to be the end of his life versus a 16-year-old. That is going to be the duration of his life every other stage of his life through adulthood and being elderly every moment of growth and you know opportunities to learn and meet new people those are all gone and so proportionally this is a much more severe penalty the holding here makes the point that it's not possible to conclusively decide the long-term danger that a child might uh, present to society um, because they haven't yet had the opportunity to demonstrate maturity or growth and with that, the court eliminates life without parole for youth who committed non-homicide offenses. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good um, a good point there that the incorrigibility, which is you know saying that a kid is never able to be rehabilitated, is inconsistent with youth. And I think that's a really succinct quote from Justice Kennedy that really sums up what we're talking about here. So now we move on to the case of Miller v. Alabama, which was decided in 2012. In July 2003, Evan Miller and Colby Smith, then 14 years old, killed Cole Cannon and burned his trailer. Cannon had come to make a drug deal with Miller's mom. The boys then followed Cannon back to his trailer where they all smoked marijuana and drank. Cannon passed out. Miller stole from his wallet. And while replacing the wallet, Cannon woke up and grabbed Miller by the throat. Smith then hit Cannon with a nearby baseball bat. Miller grabbed the bat and continued to assault Cannon. The boys then lit two fires in an attempt to cover up their crimes. Cannon died from his injuries and smoke inhalation. Miller was waived to adult court where he was charged with murder in the course of arson. Smith pled to a lesser offense. Uh, Miller was found guilty and sentenced to what was mandatory at the time, which was life without the possibility of parole. So again, here we look at Miller's history. He was in and out of foster care. His mother suffered from alcoholism and drug abuse. His stepfather abused him. And as we see in this case, Miller also used drugs and alcohol. And perhaps the most disturbing part of Miller's childhood is that he had attempted suicide four times, the first of which was when he was only six years old. And here, let's talk about another case, Jackson versus Hobbs, decided actually in conjunction with Miller versus Alabama. Um, 14-year-old Contrell Jackson joined two other boys as they went to a video store to commit a robbery. On the way there, Jackson realized that another boy was carrying a shotgun, and so for the duration of the robbery, he stayed outside. But when he entered, finally, another boy shot and killed an employee of the store. The prosecutors charged Jackson with felony murder and aggravated robbery as an adult. He tried to have 
his case tried in juvenile court, but the court denied his motion, and he was later convicted of both crimes and was sentenced to life without parole. And again, here we look at Jackson's history, and you see even more trauma. So Jackson's mother and grandmother had both previously shot other individuals. So, you know, I'm unclear on whether or not Jackson was present at the shootings, but just taking into account the fact that he has had two family members involved in shootings, that creates a a real traumatic childhood experience. Following the Roper decision uh, that we talked about previously, Jackson filed a petition for habeas corpus. And a habeas corpus petition is basically saying that there is a fundamental right that protects against unlawful and indefinite imprisonment. So by being sentenced to life without parole, um, Jackson is saying that this is unlawful um, because there is no opportunity for release. So he argued that sentencing a child to life without parole violates the Eighth Amendment and that it is cruel and unusual. And the circuit court rejected this argument. Jackson appealed that ruling, and during this appeal, Graham was decided striking down juvenile life without parole for non-homicide offenses. So again, let's jump back to the underlying question, the constitutional principle that the court is trying to address here, which is sentencing someone to life without parole. Here, what the uh, what the question is, is whether mandatory, the mandatory aspect of a life without parole sentence is constitutional. So let's actually talk about how that happens. How do we come to a mandatory sentence of life without parole? Well, before Roper, certain murder-related crimes in Alabama had two possible penalties, the death penalty and life without the possibility of parole. After Roper, which struck down the death penalty for juveniles, we only have one penalty left, which is life without the possibility of parole. Hence, the mandatory aspect of that sentence. Anyone convicted of that crime is automatically given a sentence of life without parole. So coming back to Miller, Miller appealed the decision uh, in the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals, which denied his request, stating that the sentence was not extreme when compared to his crimes. The Supreme Court then decides to hear his case, and again, the underlying question is whether mandatory uh, life sentences without the possibility of parole are constitutional for juveniles. And Justice Kagan writes the court's answer, representing a 5-4 majority of the court, uh, and she follows kind of a similar analysis to the Roper and Graham decisions, where the court has to see juveniles as categorically different from adults. They have a, quote, diminished capacity and a greater possibility for being reformed and rehabilitated. She also mentions this uh, concept of proportionality, which I mentioned before, that Justice Kennedy mentioned in the Graham decision. Um, So while the court doesn't entirely eliminate sentences of juvenile life without parole, it does require the sentencers to first consider the special situations of the youth, right? Um, Justice Kagan writes that the court must take into consideration their family and home environment, the pressures of the environment that they're living in, uh, and then also the vulnerability of youth kind of in general, right? Like their immaturity and their inability to even assist in their own legal defense. So this case ultimately puts an end to mandatory sentences of life without parole for homicide offenses committed by juveniles. And again, this is decided in conjunction with Jackson versus Hobbs. Yeah, and you mentioned something there about um, a youth's ability to participate in their own defense. And that's something that we haven't really talked about on this podcast yet, but it is a really crucial part of youth youth going through 
the justice system. And one of the, I guess, markers of youth and and being justice involved is that they have the right to participate in their defense and they need to be able to meaningfully do so. But by the very nature of being a child and how convoluted our justice system is, it's almost impossible for a child to truly meaningfully engage in their own defense. So um, I appreciate you bringing that point up. So like you said, um, this case was decided that juvenile life without parole, mandatory juvenile life without parole violates the Eighth Amendment. Um, And in deciding whether or not to sentence um, a youth to juvenile life without parole, the sentencer must take into account how children are different and how those differences counsel against irrevocably sentencing them to a lifetime in prison. So this decision had a pretty substantial impact. Um, At the time of the decision, there were 2,600 kids sentenced to juvenile life without parole. And as of 2021, that number ranges from 700 to 1,200 youth. And we're not sure the exact number, but that's already cut in half right there. So it's a really substantial, it has a really substantial impact. Absolutely, Gabby. And I think that really highlights uh, just how important these decisions can be. And it brings up another question. You know, after the Supreme Court has ruled that a decision or that a sentence is unconstitutional, what happens to people that have already received that sentence in the past? Well, we get that answer in Montgomery versus Louisiana in 2016. This case originated a long time ago. Henry Montgomery was 17 years old at the time when he shot and killed a deputy sheriff in Louisiana. Um, In his first trial, he was uh, convicted of murder and sentenced to death. But the Supreme Court, Louisiana Supreme Court, overturned his sentence because they believed that that the trial had been colored by, uh, by public prejudice. And he was convicted again in 1969 in a second trial, uh, but this time his penalty was an automatic sentence of life without parole. Well, an automatic sentence of life without parole is what was overturned by the Supreme Court in the Miller decision. And so Montgomery, then 69 years old at this point, files a motion to correct what he believed to be an illegal sentence. And the Louisiana Supreme Court hears his motion. I think that kind of goes back to that quote earlier from... Justice Kennedy about the proportion of the life being spent in prison um, by a youth versus an adult and how much how much more impact the sentence has when it's a child being sentenced to life because they're essentially being sentenced to die in prison, being told that they have no capacity for reform. Um, so I, I appreciate you bringing up that these these defendants are full grown adults by the time well, most of them are fully grown adults by the time their cases are decided. So with this Montgomery case, the Louisiana Supreme court denied um, his motion on the grounds that Miller was not retroactive. And this is something that we sort of see across the nation is that Miller is being applied retroactively differently. So the Montgomery case was sort of one of many in that nobody knew whether or not Miller should be applied retroactively. So Montgomery then petitioned the United States Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court held that Miller does apply retroactively, um, stating that 
Miller did more than require a sentencer to consider a juvenile offender's youth before imposing life without parole. It established that the penological justifications for life without parole collapse in light of the distinctive attributes of youth. And that, again, is Justice Kennedy writing for the opinion. And Miller's decision doesn't necessarily mean that everyone has to be resentenced or released. It just means that they have the right to be considered for parole. And in those parole considerations, they have to look at um, six different aspects that were outlined in the Miller considerations or in the Miller hearing. So the first is chronological age and immaturity, impetuosity, and the failure to appreciate risks and consequences, which we've talked about quite a bit that kids just don't have the capacity to look that far ahead and see the consequences of their actions. The second is the offender's family and home environment. We've talked about that quite a bit as well, highlighting that every single one of these cases and every single kid in these cases had a traumatic childhood. Third is the circumstances of the offense, including the extent to which um, the youth participated in the criminal conduct. So, for example, we saw um, that in one case, the youth decided to stay outside for a good portion of the offense. They were not the main perpetrator of the crime. Fourth is the impact of familial and peer pressures. Um, so, again, looking at, you know, if the family is involved in criminal activity or if their friends are involved in criminal activity, um, looking at pro-social interactions and how, how that impacts the youth. The fifth is the effect of the offender's youth on the criminal justice process, um, such as the inability to comprehend a plea bargain and meaningfully participate in their defense. And the last is the possibility for rehabilitation. And that to me is one of the most important ones because like we've really driven home in this episode, kids have substantial capacity to be rehabilitated. They are growing, they are developing, they're changing constantly. And with that can be the opportunity to be rehabilitated. So at the time of this decision, each state had been interpreting and <laughs> interpreting Miller's retroactivity differently. So 14 states ruled that Miller was retroactive and seven states ruled that it was not. So in deciding this, the Supreme Court states that Miller v. Alabama does apply retroactively and says that states need to take that into consideration. That brings us to our most recent case. Uh, this is the case of Brett Jones, who is uh, 15 years old at the time. Uh, it's called Jones versus Mississippi, and it was decided in 2021. And I think that this story really demonstrates the biological fact that children lack, you know, the impulse control of adults. That, you know, in high pressure situations, after a childhood of abuse, of neglect, uh, kids can make very, very dangerous, even fatal decisions. Uh, and growing up, Brett Jones was abused by his stepfather, who would often refer to him and his brother as little mother effers. In 2004, uh, the summer before he was going to start high school, he moved up to Mississippi from Florida uh, because he had a violent altercation with his stepfather. And he goes to Florida to stay with, uh, he goes to Mississippi, excuse me, to stay with his paternal grandparents. Then one night, Brett sneaks his girlfriend into the house and his grandfather finds out. The next morning, their altercation escalates throughout the day. They have some conflict. Eventually, they have a physical altercation. 
and he fatally injures his grandfather. Now, in the mess of it, in the panic, in the crisis, he is he tries to administer CPR unsuccessfully. He tries to hide the body again unsuccessfully, and he decides that he's going to call 911 because he wants to save his grandfather's life. He waits on the ambulance, but when he see when he sees police vehicles arrive, he flees to find his grandmother. Um, of course, he's found uh, very quickly, and he renders a quick confession. The jury convicts him of murder with a mandatory sentence of life without parole. But as a result of the Miller case, Jones is resentenced. But again, he is sentenced to life without parole. Um, the circuit court held the hearing and determined that Jones was not entitled to parole eligibility. Justice Sotomayor dissented, citing the court's holding in the Montgomery decision, saying that even if a court considers a child's age before sentencing him or her to a lifetime in prison, that sentence still violates the Eighth Amendment for a child whose crime reflects unfortunate yet transient immaturity. And that's exactly what we're talking about here, that kids really have such capacity for growth. And when you're a kid, you're immature. That's the definition of childhood is immaturity. And again, we saw throughout these cases a sort of common theme of traumatic childhood experiences. And as a social worker by profession, that's something that we talk about a lot is these, they're called adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. And we saw throughout these cases a lot of drug use, a lot of alcohol use, um, home abuse, and just generally very traumatic childhood experiences and that heavily plays into how these kids act and how they go about their their day-to-day lives and the decisions they make. And, you know, they're all just children. And so the Supreme Court held that childhood is a unique experience categorized by immaturity and that kids should be treated differently than adults. And this, this Jones versus Mississippi decision just sort of knocks that all down. Yeah, and one thing that I just want to mention here is that we've already talked about this, how the, the the science has been clear about this for a very, very long time. And it's the law that's catching up. It's the Supreme Court that's aligning itself with what we know to be biologically and physiologically true. The other point that I want to make is that the majority of these decisions leading up to Jones versus Mississippi were 5-4 and 6-3 decisions, right? It was uh, Justice Kennedy for the you know vast majority of the time being the deciding uh, vote and then chief justice uh, roberts would join him at times and what that means is that this is very very delicate right a simple change in the makeup of the court would result in a reversal or in a reversal of direction at the very least uh with regard to uh, juvenile justice and that's what we see happens right justice kennedy retires and he's replaced by justice brett kavanaugh the author of jones versus mississippi um, justice ginsburg passed away in 2020 and she's replaced by justice amy coney barrett and she again joins the majority in jones versus mississippi and so we really have to stay vigilant we have to recognize that the supreme court might have been headed in the right direction at a time and a simple change in its makeup has reversed the trend that doesn't mean it's over that doesn't mean all of this uh work is going to be reversed but it does mean that now we have a supreme court that's much more hostile to juvenile justice that's a a really good point about the law catching up with science you know we know the justice system moves slowly and you know the the wheels of government turn very slowly so 
the science is constantly evolving. That's true. But also we need to make up some distance here between what the law says and what the science says. So um, with that, we are going to sort of leave on a, a bit of a high note that the law is at least trying to catch up. We are making these efforts. Um, and in the next episode, we're going to talk about how these decisions played out and what juvenile life without parole looks like now and where Michigan stands with juvenile life without parole. That's all the time that we have for today. But before we go, I want to drop some helpline numbers for anyone who is either themselves experiencing or knows someone who's experiencing any of the things we talked about today. The first is the National Domestic Violence Hotline. That phone number is 800-799-7233. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration Helpline is 1-800-622-4357. And the last one is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline which is 800-273-8255. And those numbers will be in our show notes as well. Another thing that I want to mention for everyone to keep an eye out is a book that is set to release in April. That is Sentencing Juveniles to Life, Justice Denied by James Wendell and Kathy Milliken. If you get a chance to read it, I highly recommend it. It's a great book. And lastly, follow us on social media. You can find us pretty much everywhere at MI Youth Justice. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time at the table.